Hey everyone, Eden here. Um, before we get started with the episode, just a quick apology. Well, a few quick apologies, sorry. I was using the wrong microphone to record this one, I just didn't notice, so my sound quality is a bit subpar. I apologize for that, I'll make sure not to do it again. Um, in addition, we had some technical issues with how we record these episodes, so there are some skips and sentences that end, well, mid-sentence. So apologies for that as well. When editing this episode, I tried my best to mostly maintain your listening experience so that things don't skip. So there might be a bit of silence I put in just to ease the transitions. Again, I apologize and we will look into you know the infrastructure of how we record these and make sure that it becomes more stable. Um, and that's it. Enjoy the episode. But now we don't have any value. Hey, Langdon. Hello, Eden. Would you be willing to participate in a short survey? Absolutely. You know that I have opinions. So I'm going to give you sentences, and you are going to rank them 1 to 10. Well, 10 is completely agree, and 1 is completely disagree. All right? Got it. Seems simple enough. Yeah, it's straightforward. Don't worry. Um, things are bad all over. Yeah, that's a 10. Mm-hmm, right. And, uh, people are struggling to find the root cause of the problem. Yeah, that's, that's also a 10. Right. So what we should do as leftists is go to book fairs run by people we disagree with. All right, we're creeping we're creeping into like uh 3 territory. Right, like I'm and, intrigued by that, but I don't I'm not, you know. Yeah. So and then if we're running the book fair and some people we disagree with show up, we should smash their stuff. All right, I'm at with i'm at i'm at a i'm at a two now right and then um like if the people that we happen to disagree with here are like neo-nazi types yeah go for it um i'm assuming most of the time people that show up that we don't agree with won't be neo-nazis though they will simply be people we don't agree with and then last question um well last sentence right um the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living, and just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionizing themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before, precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans, and costumes, in order to present this new scene in world history in time-honored, disguised, and bold language. Oh, that's absolutely a 10. Yeah, no, that's right. that's spot on. Um, thank you for participating in our survey. It would be fantastic if we could just have just close Twitter and replace it with these sorts of surveys. I agree. Um, I think everything would be much better. If someone is listening and is not aware of what is has prompted this uh, cold opening, first of all, congratulations. 
Um, You've you been live, spared. <laughs> yeah, you live a happier life than I. Um, <laughs> so what happened over the past week or so? First of all, happened the an event happened, and then the discourse of the event happened, and then the discourse on the discourse of the event happened. Um, so a bunch of Marxists, Leninists, um, decided to post up at I think it's the West Coast's largest anarchist-run book fair. Um, and you'll forgive me if I don't have all the details, like location and all that shit. I don't care. Uh, you can Google it. You don't need me for that. Um, and they were apparently they had like a table, you know, and they were handing out pamphlets because leftists they love those pamphlets do love pamphlets uh, pamphlets and newspapers baby yes uh we have not changed tactics since the 18th century this is a great idea that has no consequences whatsoever on our ability to talk to people um and on that table they had you like you know dramatic organs and lightning flashing outside they had a like a bust of lenin um which was the donations, uh, I don't know how you want to call it, bowl, uh, cup, head, decapitated head. Uh, you know, well, it was hollowed out. If I, if I had to, I'd say that having a Lenin head is an extremely normal thing for a Marxist to do. Yeah, right. Um, famously, the, the, the last sentence that I just quoted w- was not written by Marx. Um, yes. <laughs> it is is not from the literal second paragraph of the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, written by Karl Marx in 1852. Um, so, okay, I mean, don't get me wrong. If I was like an event and some guy or people were collecting donations in a Lenin bust, I would also think that they are nerds. Um, but then. Someone, um, apparently anarchists or someone of that sort, uh, decided to um, deface and smash their table and steal their <laughs> Lenin bust uh, for which they were collecting donations and uh, smash it. Again, I don't have like the exact details of the damages done. You can Google that. But yeah, they kind of got in their faces and smashed their shit. Okay. That's clown behavior. Yeah. I mean, but, but in the grand scheme of things, it's like, it's not even a blip, right? Like, yeah. you know how many people get into altercations at festivals like these? Like, this is what happens. You get a bunch of people, you put them in a close place. Someone, I don't know, bumps into someone else's partner. They exchange words. Someone punches someone else. It happens all the time. Like, if yeah, it, 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 it's, it's more extremely annoying rather than like notable. Yeah, it's not an issue. Yeah. It's like if it happened to me, I would be upset and I would seek restitution or just revenge or whatever. Maybe I'd do like a hilarious high school <laughs> prank back on them. I don't know. Um, but then, again, cue organs and lightning flashing outside the castle. The awful spell of discourse was cast over the event. Dread um, wizards always fucking do this. That's why Archmages, I hate. Man. I really don't like them or trust them. I, I'm telling you, the problem is that when we went from mages to archmages, right? Like no one should have that power. 
Um, I don't mind magic, but when you put it in the hands of one individual, then you get alchemages, and that's a problem. And they um, use it only for psycho torture. Yeah, they do only bad shit with it. They could do cool stuff, but instead they do bad shit like Twitter discos. So, ah, a Twitter account officially representing the Marxist-Leninist, which has some corny-ass name like the People's Party or whatever this place was, mm-hmm. tweeted this like incredibly self-sanctimonious thread about how this proves that anarchists are immature and unable to contain differing opinions and blah 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 really like the tone was so sanctimonious like this is you know i don't know fucking d-day or uh some other military tragedy or something of the sort and then of course well, it would be ironic if an official account represented the anarchists because they're anarchists. Uh, that did not happen. They did the anarchist thing and many individuals chimed in. They were like, uh, maybe think about displaying the bust of someone who massacred anarchists at an anarchist book fair. They had it come in. Blah, blah, blah. Of course, there were other voices like my voice, which basically said, lol lame <laughs> this is hilarious to me and other people who were like can we stop talking about this like it's not important um but it spun up into this whole marxist leninists are red brown fascists versus anarchists are children with no real ideology and i think we kind of danced around that point many times on this podcast um and this it was is fucking stupid. That's the that's the short version. Yeah. In case so, you were like it, it saved saves you a bunch of hours of going back and listening. Yeah, I think <sighs> so there's a few levels in which this is fucking stupid, right? The first one we've already discussed, and it's like more of a serious conversation. If you want to hear our thoughts on it, you can go and listen to the episode about um the dawn of everything. Yeah. Um we talk about that though. And that is the most important or serious level of the discussion where, like, these ideologies can be complementary and there's a lot to be learned from each other and a lot of interesting perspectives to um, be shared. But that's not really what I want to talk about. I want to talk about a different level of it, which is exactly what Marx is referencing in the 18th Brumel, which is this insistence on the past, right? Like, if you're an anarchist and you're mad at Vladimir Lenin, <laughs> a guy who died 80, 90 years ago for killing anarchists, which, again, were his political rivals, whatever you think they should have been or not, they were his rivals. Um, or the inverse, if you're a Marxist-Leninist who worships Lenin, enough to like carry an, a hollowed out bust of his head to collect donations in a move by the way which makes you immediately unapproachable to anyone who's not a Marxist-Leninist um, again a guy who died 90 years ago you are not a materialist okay you're not Yeah. Um, like your messiah and I use that word intentionally because these people also tend to worship Marx 
and hang on every word that he wrote as if it's some sort of like uh, a sacred scripture, your Messiah wrote the sentence that I just read out. Like, and your Messiah, and Lenin as well, by the way, continuously made the point that the whole idea of Marxism is that it has to be adjusted to the material conditions of the point in time and space where you are trying to apply it. You this know, like even the reason why we see the development from Lenin to Stalin to Mao to Ho Chi Minh to Thomas Sankara to like the the entire reason that we see that perpetual development is because of that dialectical process. So that's exactly what I was about to say, and to go one step further and say every single successful communist movement was successful because it changed itself to fit the conditions currently that were currently relevant in the country. There's a reason that Castroism doesn't look like Soviet Marxism-Leninism, because Castro wasn't trying to defeat the Tsar. <laughs> he was trying to defeat Batista. Um, there's a reason that even inside the Cuban movement, there's a reason that Fidel Castro's communism doesn't look the same as Raul Castro's communism or as Che Guevara's communism because they were each focused on different struggles. Not to mention all those movements that Langdon just cited, I think the best example of which is Vietnam. Right? There's a reason Ho Chi Minh had to rewrite Marxist-Leninist thought to meet um, Vietnamese conditions. There's a reason Juche exists. Right? Um, and so first of all, that's my first point, like the insistence on these figures. Lenin has not nothing, but not very much to do with the current conditions in America. Like you should read his works, of course, I'm not preaching the ignorance. You should read his works and Marx and Ho Chi Minh and Castro and, and Guevara and Sankara and all these people. But then you should apply them to your own conditions instead of conjuring the dead spirits of these people. So so that's one. Two. Second point. Imagine if sorry, I'm reading a lot about Castro lately, so Castro is like top of my <laughs> I don't know why I'm apologizing. Like Cuba is one of the best examples of what communism can do. But um I, I've I, also been as as a brief aside of especially since the new um the new uh, Cuban family plan got ratified. I've been I'm going back and reading a lot, mostly to respond to people who bring up the I think fair critique of the, the early um homophobia and transphobia yeah. of uh the Cuban revolution that that since basically the 70s has been markedly decreasing, especially as we see in the West, these same things ratcheting back up. So it's been, yeah. Yeah. Heavy on the mind for me. I'm actually doing all of this um, in preparation for reading a book, which we which we might end up covering on the cast. Um, this is an aside, but there was this guy um, called, oh man, what's his... De Rojas is his family name. Um, trying to find his uh, his first name. Anyway, he was a, a Cuban author of science fiction. Um, he wrote Spil Spiral um, and uh, Year 200, Augustine De Rojas. I just found um, it as well. <laughs> yeah. You, you thing... literally read it out as I saw it with my eyes. <laughs> yeah. So I've been very interested in his writings ever since new translations of his work 
um, were released in English, and I really want to read him, partly because he was a big um, crit uh, critic of Castro. Um, and if you don't know, by the way, there's a very healthy and popular stream of communism in Cuba that is very critical of Castroism. Um, but mostly this guy, also the science fiction is supposed to be amazing, but also um, this guy spent the last, I think, decade or two of his life convinced that Fidel Castro never existed. Um, and he appears to have undergone some sort of like Philidikian um, mental episode that left him convinced that Fidel Castro never existed. Anyway. I've read that. about that event. I didn't know that that was the same guy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, preparing to read Spiral, and I want to read it within the context, so I'm brushing up on my um, urban history. Anyway, imagine if Castro marched into... Havana, and if you don't know the details of like the Cuban Revolution, even after Castro had defeated uh, Batista's forces against all odds, and he enjoyed a lot of popularity among the Cuban population, the first few years of his rule were very shaky, right? Like obviously, threatened from outside and from within, and so on. And and part of Castro's genius was his ability. Wait, wait, to... wait! You're saying that a revolution didn't immediately provide social and political <laughs> stability? No way. I, I, why would I say that? That's clearly a lie. Um, <laughs> so one of Castro's great um, successes was the, his ability to recruit previous enemies um, to his side. right? So and, and of course, in order to do that, he had to make a lot of concessions and um, think about his, his image and, and how he uh, comports himself and, and so on. So just imagine if instead of doing all of that, he would have walked in with a bust of Stalin. Right, like just a painting of Stalin. And whenever someone would ask him what he believes in, he would say, oh, I'm a Stalinist. Like, I think we should do what Stalin did in Russia. Like, how fast do you think this guy would have lost all his power after the revolution? Like, what's my point here? You realize that, and again, I'm speaking to Twitter leftists, right? You realize that if we win, time doesn't stop, right? Like, you realize that if we win, it's not that then we wake up the morning after and every single person we will meet will be a communist. You, you do understand that, right? You will have to work with the rest of the population of the countries that you live with, right? Like, not even Stalin killed every single person who wasn't a communist, okay? You're not going to kill them. You, you need to work with them. That means making concessions. That means not showing up to every single place you go with a bust of Lenin's head. <laughs> like, imagine, you know, these are scenarios that leftists just don't think about. Imagine we win, and you, you're not the, um, what's the word, the chairman of the Soviet uh, Assembly, right, of America. You are the leader of of the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce, right? That, that's the job you got after the revolution. And now you need to work with the businesses in the Minnesota state um, to ensure that they keep functioning so that you can have stuff like, you know, the stuff that we need to live, like factories and food and all that shit. 
And the first meeting, which you know is going to be charged because people are afraid and they don't know what the party is going to do and they don't know what communism is and they're not communist themselves. Uh, yeah, we killed all the Nazis. Okay, we executed all the Nazis and whatever. We, oh, sorry, not executed. We redacted them and exiled them <laughs> or whatever, right? Um, and then we're left with all the, the other people. And you show up to the first meeting and you're blaring like the USSR anthem and you have like a bust of Lenin installed behind you and you start waving red flags with yellow stars on them. Does that make sense to you? It reminds me of when the, so there's been a wave in America of like patriotic socialism. Yep. I was going to bring up those fucking assholes. Absolute fucking cornball behavior. Like before we get even to their, um, like bad political stances on, on a number of issues. I mean, it's just like the actual Strasserites and like red brown fascists, right? Like, why would you. Why would you be like, oh, well, there was an American Socialist Party in the in the 30s, and we're going to adopt all of that imagery? Be like, in what circumstance, in what other circumstance would that not be absolute cornball behavior? The only yeah. time I think that could ever be like not just cringe-inducingly like corny would be if it was like a car company that had a legacy and was like, we're gonna that's it. Yeah. I mean, like, I've thought about this, and I think only cars could get away with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even with cars, it's it's actually a funny example you bring up because car companies are actually very much interested in erasing their history because they all all built tanks at some point in their past. Or Um, worked with horrible uh, fascist regimes in order to provide them with. Yeah. Um, like Mercedes really doesn't like it when you bring up like, hey, didn't you supply SS- the SS with uh uh with luxury cars? And they're like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> like, um, <clears throat> I I feel like I lose a year of my life every time I quote Family Guy, but Family <laughs> has a great joke about this. Well, um, wait, what's the name of the dog? Um, Brian. Brian. Stewie and Brian they go to Germany. And then they go to a museum and the guide like talks about um, 19th and 20th century. And then it was like, and from 1939 to 1945, we were all on vacation, <laughs> uh, which I think is a great joke. And then when they try to ask him about it, he's like, no, 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 we, we were on vacation. None of us were in. We don't know what happened. Rolling this back into like leftist discourse. By the way, so far I've gone for the Marxist Leninist, but this is also true for the anarchists, of course, like, I don't want to get into the wider discussion. Well, actually, we might as well, right? There's also this discussion around um, people quote Marx, you know, by no means should the arms of the working class be surrendered, right? Under no condition, blah, 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 as an as an excuse to resist gun control from the left. And this Marxist tendency to do this as well, but anarchists really like to do it, right? Because gun ownership is a very you know, individualist um, sort of endeavor. But that's not what Marx was talking about, right? He was not talking about individual ownership of guns, right? He was talking about the arming of a militia. Um, He was talking about, you know, taking actions in in concert in order to, even against the law, um, hold arms so that an armed struggle uh, could be made. And then the second point, of course, is that, in my argument is then, you know, there's no way that any individual will ever defeat the American army by force of arms, which is true. And then 
the the retort is ever heard of the Viet Cong man? Ever heard of like the Palestinian resistance? Ever heard of like all sorts of Rojava and like dude. <laughs> it's that's especially frustrating. When they bring up the PLO, I get red in the face because I'm like, isn't one of our near fundamental stances that they're currently not winning the armed struggle? Exactly. And also like Like they're they're currently being attacked with white phosphorus. Like it happened again recently. Like that's not that's not the winning side. Yeah, and also you know, people like to say the Viet Cong is like a recent example. That was fifty years ago. Do you also know? the condition of armed struggle in Vietnam against a foreign invading yeah. imperial force? Specifically, like the the foreign part, where it's like you're in very different conditions. Like yeah. we don't have monsoons in America. We don't have to deal with monsoon weather and monsoon like vegetation and plant, but uh, like insect life but, but even even if you know what even if we did let, let's let, let's put it on the table let's say that like america had this like super rugged <clears throat> geography that was very hard to tack down by the way it does like most of the country is flat most of the country is just a fucking plane where you can't hide this idea that were like i can't believe you think that reading lenin <clears throat> is important I can't believe you think that reading Stalin is important. How dare you con- uh, 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 condone the genocide? Like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? I can read any book on this planet. I've read Mein Kampf. I think it's important to read Mein Kampf. It's important to read Hitler's book. It doesn't mean you are pro-Hitler. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? It, okay. it- that strikes on a broader question of of literacy that um that we've routinely engaged with here. Yeah, like okay, sure. If someone shows up with a bust of Hitler, okay, <laughs> smash it as much as you'd like. But a bust of Lenin is not a bust of. It's not even. It's not even Stalin. You know what? If it was a bust of Stalin, I think we'd have a bigger conversation, right? And we've spoken on the, on this cast, you know, in the past about his mistakes and his successes and what he did and our disagreements with Stalin. Like we're not Stalinists, but but Lenin, like... One of the most... Especially because by the end of his life, he was an ardent defender of what he referred to as, like, Bolshevik anarchists because of being... their being the most ardent on-the-ground supporters of of revolution in general. Like, again, it's like, even a little understanding of the, the history of quite literally the guy they were mad about would show that he massively softened his stance. Like, I don't even recall him ordering the deaths of anarchists we can go into kronstadt and all that stuff and and we can argue about lenin's part in those decisions but even putting all of that aside and those great books that were written on on the topic let's say that you're right let's say that like lenin is this horrible person that like i don't know shot anarchists himself and laughed while they were dying someone shows up in your space your anarchists the whole point of your fucking existence is that you believe that there are ways to um, order your places without violence that's the whole fucking point that if you try to limit the behavior of others with violence then you are creating authority 
what do you call like smashing someone's shit if not I am stronger, therefore I get to decide what you do. Of course, anarchists don't have to be pacifists. But the idea that if someone shows up in your spaces and they're ideologically impure, so you respond by forcibly ejecting them from your spaces, that is not fucking anarchy. That, that's not how anarchy looks like. Any, it, at least any worthwhile anarchy. It reminds me <clears throat> of a general problem we see replicated a lot which is we know on paper that we need to challenge reactionary uh, beliefs and actions and also challenge uh, predatory or dangerous beliefs and actions, which are, they overlap, but they're not always the same. And then we know also that on the left, we need to focus, especially with such a fractured left and in an international left that needs international solidarity to function whatsoever, that we need to focus on like a dialectical, like problem solving approach. Like the whole point is to solve and quell dispute rather than <clears throat> decide capital letters, who is right, who is wrong. Like it, it's, it's this more complex thing. But we tend to hold on to the need for that dialectical process when we are the ones who would gain from that. And we see people jump very quickly to um, this this mindset of like, I'm going to smash evil whenever they would be challenged by that process. And so it's like, we don't, it, this happens in a lot of people, Marxists. Um, this happens in anarchists. This happens in people who just call themselves leftists or progressives. This, I, I, I was talking about this before of like, we've even, there is a failure on another end of like really grappling with what dialectical understanding of the world looks like, or the, the lay version being intersectionality of like the classic thing of like, if a black man and a black cis man and a white trans woman are in conflict, you do not leap to automatically <clears throat> jumping to either side. You have to sort of approach this as a gainful situation because you can very quickly find yourself accidentally replicating these reactionary stances because you've decided it's more efficacious uh, to triage the scenario in one way to solve one angle, but then have uh, exacerbated this other angle that you've triaged out. And so it's like, it's this perpetually replicating problem of like people overly simplifying these social conflicts to the point that gives them the most advantage, that it's like, if I press it for resolution in this direction, I gain the most. And it's like, you, it, most of the time it leads to nothing or just leads to being annoying online. And then uh, at its, not necessarily worst, but this this event at the, uh, um, the convention you were talking about strikes at that middle space where it's like, like it it feels like a bit right that it's like there's an anarchist convention so the marxists show up and put a big lenin bust in order to antagonize the anarchists then the anarchists come and smash it like children and start taking their stuff it's like it feels like it should be in a comedy movie because yeah. it sucks to clarify yeah. it's because it sucks <laughs> okay let's talk about something that doesn't suck that's right. There is a band called Gospel. 
Ooh. and love gospel gospel have recently released maybe the best album of 2022 um, it's on it's on my list um yes it is um and on my list as well uh titled the loser and what this album does by the way recorded by kurt balu um and also Zach he's Max. everywhere yeah. To be fair, he also recorded their debut, so this is also like a kind of a reunion of sorts for them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're not familiar with Zach Weeks, he's also a really good producer who works with uh, Kurt um, at God City Studios, and it was mastered by Magnus Lindberg, who is another fantastic producer. And what this album does is, what if I took King Crimson, but like the more muscular King Crimson, like think Starless or um, Larkstang in Aspect, you know, like a psychedelic, groovy, intense kind of King Crimson. And I slammed it into like a punk screamo band. What, what would that sound like? And that would sound like The Loser. So think huge synths and you know, like these rumbling, psychedelic prog rock riffs, but then the vocalist is doing screamo, almost scrams, right? It's like super emotive and wild sort of singing. And you get this album. And like, it's not just the gimmick, right? Like these things are integrated <clears throat> and they flow and those dynamics on this album that I've like, I've, literally never heard before it's like ridiculous it's a little bit a little bit of history on the band that i think is really fascinating yeah. is they they came together and put out a single record in 2005 called the moon is a dead planet fucking incredible it's like it was very underlistened when it came out but it very quickly became like a if you were uh, into scrams it's like yeah. one of the best um the moon the moon is a dead world moon is a dead world yeah that's what it was um and that one also had a mixture of Prague and Screamo, not nearly this far. It, that was sort of like a wave in the mid-2000s. That's where we got, like, um, Coheed and Cambria starting to get going. They're not quite Screamo, but you can see sort of the adjacents of, yeah. like, the progressive rock mixed with Emo and Screamo. We had, um, like, uh, like, the Deer Hunter had just formed, and uh, Casey had just left a, like, a, a lightly proggy screamo band. You had bands like The Fall of Troy. You had, like, um, Kyoto, who played Circle with some... Circle Takes the Square. Circle Takes the Square. That's a, that's a really classic one that yeah. that also eventually became just a prog rock band. I love you, Circle Takes the Square. Um, <laughs> but Gospel showed up, dropped maybe the best record of that wave if not it's in the top five top ten very easily and then disappeared and it just yeah. they they all went off and did other things um and it was literally they made an instagram account and everyone like two months ago and everyone's like what they posted one picture which was the uh the white label version which is basically like the the final press before you actually like start producing the record and it just said gospel, the loser, no caption. And everyone was like, what? And then like, they just dropped the record like a month after that. Yeah. 17 years after their first album. They're just like, oh yeah, by the way, um, we have a second yeah. record. Uh, it's also perfect. Uh, yeah. All right. 
Yeah. It's fucking incredible. Incredible. So there's also there's also like there's there's bits of like early yes, like like yeah. yes album and fragile. Yes, yeah. there's like Tony K style like organ playing. There's like there's Emerson Lake and Palmer riffs on it. Like it's Talcus. God, I fucking love it. Yeah, there's a lot of Talcus on it, I would say. Um yeah. actually I would I would cite like yes as a relayer, I think, rather than fragile. Um I could see that as well. Anyway. Oh, we're God. going to play oh. we're going to play SRO, um, which is the fourth track from the album, and I think the one that most exemplifies like how this formula works. Just I really like, wanted to in my review I couldn't talk about the um the metric breakdown of that opening riff. Um, but I will here because I'm a nerd. Like yeah. it has these it's three measures of alternating six plus eight um to get like basically a seven four vibe, then three measures of eight plus eight, one more measure of the six plus eight, then a measure of six plus ten. Um, it feels really wonky, but then like if you math it out, that it very much like Mashuga turns into a big cycle of four four. It's just like God, it's ah. <laughs> yeah, and also I I wanna before we play the track, um, I'm just reading from the middle stanza of it. I hope you realize you're a bastard but your father's still around and his straight white version of events isn't how this shit goes down. This is Gospel with S-R-O.
Awesome. Now let's go even weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> there is a guy, and the guy is called Steve Erickson. And Steve Erickson is perhaps the quintessential writer's writer. Um, I'd never heard of him until a few years ago when I just stumbled into the strand and bought Shadowban, the book that we are going to be discussing. I but believe we he... probably both have the same editions. Do you have the hardback one? Yes, the white one. Yep. 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 I uh, same. I, I looked at the cover and went, I'm gonna I'm gonna read that flap. I'm gonna read that flap right now. <laughs> so despite being um unknown, like he should be as known as like Margaret Atwood or also Le Guin or people of that like caliber. He has been cited by check this out. Thomas Pynchon, Haruki Murakami, David Foster Wallace, Neil Gaiman, Richard Powers, Kathy Aker, Jonathan Lehman, William Gibson, and none other than frenemy of the blog, Mark Z. Danielewski. Um, he has been written on in everywhere. New York Times, Esquire, Sinsonian, Rolling Stone, LA, anything, won the National Magazine Award. It was a finalist, sorry. Um, a bunch of stuff, and yet he, he no got, one he got he had a con he had in uh like an interview series with the University Press in Mississippi that had him published alongside in the same series that had conversations with Hemingway, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, like 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 the biggest names in yeah. literature, like literally the top of the mountain. Yeah. Um. In early uh, 2022, he published American Stutter, which I have not yet read. It's a nonfiction about his life, but also about July 2019 to January 2021. And you can guess <laughs> what's going on there. Um, and reportedly, all or most of the New York mainstream publishing houses wanted to defer publication until 2024, because they were reportedly unnerved by the book's quote-unquote ferocity. <laughs> um, this guy has written about everything, um, from slavery through feminism, divorce, orphanage, death, Africa, the collapse of American society, dreams, sex, post-apocalypse, everything. I think maybe the most pertinent comparison would be J.G. Ballard, um, in the sense that his literature tends to be feverish and fragmentary and um, hallucinogenic. But then once you read it, you start to see it everywhere. Like, I don't know, listeners, how many of you have read J.G. Ballard, but the first time you read J.G. Ballard, you're like, what the fuck did I just read? And then you walk outside and you're like, wait, what? He just <laughs> described the reality that I'm seeing and everything starts to fall into place in all these weird ways and you lose your mind. Um, reading J.G. Ballard is like an experience. And yeah. that's kind of what happened to me with the book that we're going to cover today, which is Shadowban. So I think always when we like do synopses, we have like no fucking chance of actually conveying a book with our worlds, right? Because the work is the the book is a work of art that cannot be condensed. But here, 
it's even less so. I, um, I, the only way I think I could give a one sentence synopsis of the most American novel that can ever exist gives no idea of what's inside of the book, obviously. But that's yeah. because if I told you that there is um, first a hallucinatory, but then real resurrection of the Twin Towers that's referred to in Christian language, similar to the second coming of Christ that happens in the middle of Arizona, Dakota. and that this in the middle of what? Dakota. Oh, yeah, Dakota. That, that's what it was. Um, yeah. And that uh Elvis's stillborn brother uh Jesse um is uh resurrected as the new king uh on the 93rd floor which is where the planes hit and there's um a DJ who can't remember um a sacred song uh that he he chases after a radio station to find it and this leads him to to the twin towers um which are physically real and like <laughs> so he's <laughs> so that's the non-spoilery uh, synopsis. I think what's missing. So we have the twin towers. We have Presley. We have the DJ, and the other storyline is two kids. Well, one of them is twenty-three, and the other is fifteen. Parker and Zima siblings who make the classic American cross-country trip, um, chasing their father's history through a playlist that he made them. Um, And when I say through a playlist, like we get pages upon pages of his journal documenting why he chose certain songs. And this book is like half uh, uh, musical criticism, like in musical journalism, which is very interesting. So if the God of Music never lived, if Elvis never lived and Jesse lived instead of him, then Erickson traces the knock-on effect of this. And basically, if there's no Elvis, then there's no Beatles. Um, by the way, Paul McCartney dies <laughs> instead yeah. of John Lennon. Um, Kennedy doesn't win um, the presidency. And then maybe there is no 9-11. It's a very interesting thing to say, by the way. Um, and if there's no 9-11, then the towers exist in this alternate reality from which they can be projected onto our timeline. He the other yeah go ahead. I, I was I was going to leap into the 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 literary bit there of like the interesting bit of having no nine eleven is because this it, it, I'm glad you brought up the Caitlin connection um because that was especially as we were prepping for this that was something that weighed heavily on my mind because as much as Caitlin had a hallucinatory mystic connection to what colonialism was to the European mind in order to build out the weird psychedelic um, hyper-religious critique of it. Um, similarly, this this feels like a, like a spiritual novel. Like, it's when I said, like, the most American novel ever, it's because it's taking these, these icons of American civic religion. Elvis, 9-11, um, the power of yeah like uh like all of these things and sort of ruminating on the classic thing of like inversion placing things like uh jfk as like an american christ that was sacrificed things like 9-11 as an american golgotha um not in the sense of necessarily saying it's good that those happened, but him more commenting like that is the position that they have in the American psyche. 
the the way that I, like we've had lots of great writing about this, like nine eleven, despite being one admittedly tragic and terrible. No one, no one here is pro nine eleven. To clarify, but also you look at tragic events across the globe, and it's non unique, but but it drove America into a unique kind of American psychosis that like yeah exacerbated a madness that was already and so him just taking that mad religious fervor and pouring that into uh so like the 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 presence of the twin towers is almost like what if christ's sacrifice never happened yeah i think (laughs) so i I agree entirely but i think if we so two things one the one of the motifs of the book is echoes yes um if we're talking about music then it's impossible not to talk about echoes and um, how things reverb and stuff like that. So I think he's making a very good point about how America eats its own heroes because it's not just PFK, right? Elvis also died as an American sacrificial lamb, right? He died in excess, American excess, right? The grandeur and the folly of um, his mansion and his appetites and his um, complete... Uh, gluttony, right? Which is, of course, the gluttony and excess of America. And then it's not that like John Lennon doesn't die and no one dies. Paul dies in his stead. Someone has to die, right? Idols, even in a scenario where they're not idols anymore, but something of the essence of being an idol is tainting them. In America, they have to die. And even, even if they don't die, they crash and they burn. And we can keep going with it, right? Like Britney Spears, right? Chester Bennington. All of these names, well, when you mix um, music, fame, celebrity, all of that together, you get this toxic uh, formula, which, like you said, exists elsewhere on the planet, but not in the same way that it does in America. Like we're obsessed with the image of the Black Dahlia and Marilyn Monroe in yeah. in similar ways. Like we've had to fight very hard to regain like quite literally a humanity for Marilyn Monroe, that it's like she was a real woman who had thoughts and feelings and personal experience and good days and bad days, like had to fight very, very hard to restore that because all she was, was this sacrificial icon And the second thing I wanted to point out is how the other storyline of the book kind of fits in, which is Parker and Zima's journey. And this is where I think Erickson is really brilliant, because writing just the other storylines, I can see other authors doing it, right? But balancing them so perfectly with a much slower and more subtle storyline in the way that he did, without either the more surreal one becoming decontextualized and too weird to process or the more subtle one becoming boring um, and and maintaining both of them and their excellence truly speaks to his genius, right? Because Parker and Zima's journey is much more introspective and much more about the relationship between, first of all, brother and sister, second of all, um, interracial um, marriage and the children of those marriages and how they fit in 
into the society um, in which they exist. And of course, America's deep-seated racism. Um, in the timeline where Parker and Zima are doing the road trip, there is no United States. There are two entities that have risen in its place, union and disunion. And Parker and Zima are driving along a highway that is in between these two entities. More importantly, there's no music, right? Hinting that they're from the timeline where Jesse is from, um, that is where Elvis died. Um, but they're listening to the um, playlist that their father uh, made, right? And in their relationship and the relationship with the country around them and with their father's specter, right? Um, it's kind of hovering over the conversation. There's a lot of really interesting ideas, not just about the bigger issues that I mentioned, like racism and fear and all that stuff, but also about the relationship with music right? and, and what music uh, can tell us about ourselves, can tell us about each other. And something that I really liked, this idea of crafting a playlist right, as an act of not just personal creation, but also communication with others. Like, what would you like to tell the world about yourself through the art which you curate, which is incredibly interesting. Um, side note, I think it's an interesting aside. Um, one of the most important historical documents that we have are the journals of Samuel Pepys. Yep. Um, he was uh, a person who lived in uh, England, and he was uh, a Protestant, and we won't go into the whole Max Weberian idea of why Protestants keep journals and stuff like that, but he kept a meticulous journal, and through that we have learned about the lives um, of 17th century England, and it's really boring, like it's super boring, because he writes everything, like I went to buy sausage, it's boring, and then you find like these gems that suddenly hit you with interest, and when I read it in my BA, one of the things that really leaps at me is that he mentions that he's going to have like a social occasion in, in his house. So he has to arrange his library. So the books he most wants his guests to see are at the front. And he's completely unapologetic about it. He's like, this is okay. And everybody does it, which is fascinating. Like this idea that through the art that you consume and how you display it, you construct yourself. And Steve Erickson also deals with it in Shadowban. Right, um, this idea that our relationship towards music is forged by the fact that there's infinite music, and so we have infinite choice. Therefore, what we choose to highlight and listen to and communicate to others is something that we like speaks a lot about who we are and what we would like to communicate. I think the the like second thread that runs through all these ideas, 9-11 and Presley and Parker and Zima and everything is, well, in essence, this is a postmodernist novel. Good right? Lord, yes. <laughs> in, the, in the tradition of J.G. Ballard and, and Frederick Jameson, right? By the way, Jameson and Ballard spoke to each other. Jameson read Ballard and wrote about his books a lot. It, it communicates the fragmentation of the postmodernist era. And this is, by the way, a mistake that a lot of people make. Like, well, a lot of them are right wing chuds, right? But this idea that postmodernist philosophers want postmodernism, 
they're like on the <laughs> postmodernist camp where in, in actuality they're just describing the current state of, of affairs right same thing here yeah. it's not it's not a good thing as ericsson sees it it's just the way things are um at some point zima's saxophone teacher says confusion confusion is the future embrace the confusion right um the novel really talks about how fragmentary and impossible to understand our reality has become like 9-11 ever like think about 9-11 <laughs> like as an american i can say yes yeah <laughs> but like just sit there just sat there and just thought about it like the fact that it happened it's it's mind-boggling like literally it's just static noise i i was 13 i wasn't five years old like i watched the live broadcast yeah the i was plane. i think i was 12 um yeah. i know it was in the seventh grade so like we were playing D D. And then one of our other friends who wasn't playing with us burst into the room and said, like, turn on the TV. And we were, like, glued to the skin. We saw the second plane hit. But did did I actually see that? Like, everything in my body wants to say no. That no way did you see a plane hit a tower. And it's not just 9-11, right? Like, did I witness all of the events of the last 20 years like did i actually take dozens of covid tests for for a plague right like did i you know take a train into seattle and watch thousands of people sleeping under underpasses right yeah there, there's a there's a psychedelic dissociative capacity to these kinds of when I say traumatic events, someone's going to wince and be like, well, it's not traumatic compared to blah, blah, blah. But that, that's that's not really the point. It's that, like like you're saying, Eden, these, these events can come in big and small forms. There's like anyone who drives long enough in an urban environment or uh, will at some point probably see someone die on the side of the road while they're driving from some kind of car accident. It's just sort of like an odds game. Uh, I've yeah. seen it twice. And again, it's it's one of the most mundane things in the world on paper because people die every day. People, this is, but it like it it sticks as this like impossible thing, this impossible object. It's like seeing, uh, it's like seeing those like a uh, visual, those like visual trick bits of architecture. It, it's like it's like turning a corner and just seeing one. And then you just keep walking and it's just not there anymore. And you're like, what the, what the fuck did I just see? Um, yeah. And what, what Ericsson does really well, I think is he then says, you're in this mindset. You're constantly exposed to it. Like your, your relationship with reality is, is fragmentary and impossible to pin down and constantly shifting. And then you meet culture and culture tries to present itself as this, monolithic thing like this idea of the mainstream and what's popular and it just smashes into pieces on the face of this confusion like there's so much music so many different genres you know the narratives that we tell ourselves make absolutely no sense let me give you an example 
there's this like age-old debate that high schoolers have of what was the first metal band. But that question doesn't have an answer, right? Because it keeps going back and forth. You know, you could say Blue Oyster Cult, or you could say Black Sabbath, or you could say Led Zeppelin, or you could say King Crimson, and all of those answers are true in some way. And in others, they are wrong. And in others, they're just static. Like, what does it mean to be the first metal band when none of these bands describe themselves as playing metal music? And it's not just metal. It's um, uh, uh, synth pop and electronic music. And Deleuze makes the same point, but with jazz, where it's like, where we know at a certain point that jazz was a thing. Yeah. Like, but... When, especially when you know, like, the origins, like, oh, well, it came from blank, be like, how far back can you go before you go, it's now not jazz? And not just, like, picking a random point, but, like, the funny thing of moving in continuity, where moving in continuity gives you a completely different perspective than looking in these, like, pointillistic, like, treating history as pointillism versus a, a continuous flow. Where yeah. once it becomes a continuous flow, all of a sudden you're back like 100, 200 years before the event at the origin of something and you can still see its shadow. And yeah. like you wouldn't do that if you just picked this moment out. You wouldn't be like, oh, the 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 lingering origins of, of jazz are still accumulating here and we can still witness them. You'd be like, no, they're playing banjos and fighting the Civil War. Um, yeah, I think. Another point I want to add into this part of the discussion is like the genius of the title. Um, so Shadowban, he writes it with an H, which makes it a reference to the road that Parker and Zima are traveling down in a sense of Autobahn being a freeway. But there's absolutely no way that he didn't mean Shadowban as in when you get blocked on a social media platform without your knowledge or phone right? You can still keep posting, but no one sees your posts. But because you can keep posting, you don't know that you're blocked. That is such a depressing title for a book, because what Erickson is basically telling us is, I'm screaming into the void, right? Like, I'm writing this book, but what's the point? Like, I keep posting, I keep publishing, I keep throwing my voice out there, but I don't even know that no one is reading, right? Because I can publish. The book will be released, and I'm a big enough author that it will be released by a prestigious like place, and I'll get all the marketing that I want. But will people actually be able to read it, like understand it? goes back to this idea of echoes and also the, the fragmentary nature of our entire effort to communicate. There's even there's even the additional capacity that anyone who's tried to write or make anything like like literally make anything like you're you make songs and release them on Bandcamp, you write criticism or you write novels, you um, are a cultural critic, like any of these things whatsoever. There is the secondary capacity there of even if it reaches people, will this do anything? Yeah. Like, like the thing that, like, especially in the wake of like every time there's a school shooting, every time there's a, um, a new war that kicks off, every time there's like a new massive political conflict, 
I look at writing about records and I go, what, what, what the fuck am I doing? Or like writing fiction. I'm like, what, what, like seeing the conflicts of different writers being like, what books constitute books that do harm versus not do harm. And then I read about 19 children gunned down in an elementary school. And I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Um, There's that secondary capacity of like, even if your scream reaches someone, is it, is it reaching just another void? Like it's, um, that embodying haunting sense of, of the Jesse Presley musical anti-God that sort of lingers inside of all cultural production. It, it's a harrowing thing to think about. It's a harrowing book. Um, but I think at its core, well, not at its core, at the end of things, what I loved so much about it is that it doesn't collapse into the nihilist place that you might expect it to end up in. It doesn't just like lift its hands and say, well, that's it. You know, go home and uh, take your own life, basically, right? Like, yeah, uh, nothing is left. Um, it does, like J.G. Ballard, emphasize the importance inside this miasma of fragmentary culture and and failing epistemology of human connection right of the religion. I mean, that's 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 what that parker zima thing exactly. is. like like that that is the heart of it that like exactly it, i mean it, it, it reminds me a lot of actually like the hopefulness and anti-nihilism of of the road by cormac mccarthy which gets read by certain people as like this frighteningly nihilistic work but it's like at its heart, it's about how much a father loves his son and will do anything to to protect and nurture his son, no matter the context they find themselves in. Yeah. I think with Ericsson, you know, at the end of the day, the father's plan works, right? Like his children are able to feel a deeper connection to him um, for this search into his playlist. Uh, and the book ends with this very poignant metaphor of, of the signal still being broadcast across this divided country, but reaching the people who are tuning into um, that signal and, and connecting them. And I think at the end, Erickson is saying, but music does exist. We don't live in the Jesse Presley universe, right? We, we live in the Elvis Presley universe and yes it's fragmentary and terrible and excessive and gluttonous and fragmentary but we do have things like music and art and language and connection that can be used to bridge the gap i think it's bittersweet right because what he's saying is and yet so much of america looks the way that it does right like people actively turn away from these things I think that's what also almost also struck me, always struck me with Ballard's works as well. And what he's saying is, in a world that is completely bleak, you can't feel a sense of missed opportunity because the game was already lost from the beginning. It doesn't matter what people do in a completely hopeless world because there was never any alternative. But our world is even more depressing than that because there was an alternative. There are good things. There are ways to cross the void. There are ways to contextualize reality. But so many of us 
and the institutions and the countries and the cultures that we're part of choose to remain fragmentary, to remain plastic, to remain obsessed with the form rather than, you know, uh, uh, what's happening between the parts of the system and between uh, people. And, and like, Shadowband is one last thing, I think has the mark of all of those other great authors that were cited as being influenced by it of ambiguity. Yeah. Right? Like, does is the ending of House of Leaves good or bad? It's kind of both. Is the ending of Neil Gaiman's best works, the early works, um, are they good or bad? They're kind of both. Same thing for Atwood and the Gwyn and Philip K. Dick and all these amazing authors. Like they are able and and Thomas Pynchon for sure, right? And McCormick McCarthy as well, right? I mean, go go watch uh, or read uh, the Sunset Limited, right? Um, except don't do that because it will depress the shit out of you. Um, <laughs> the the ending is incredibly ambiguous, and that that's the sign of of I think all great literature that they're, they're, it's able to contain the ambiguity of reality, right? And I think Shadowband does that really not like no other novel that I've read. There is reading this as an American is a unique experience. Obviously all of the world lives in America's shadow. So that that's, there's, there's an element that will be able to be reached by literally anyone. Um, a wicked shadow though it is. Uh, but being being quite literally an American, being immersed like to my eyeballs in the same cultural noise and cultural civic religious objects that this book is about since birth. Um, I, I was born into a family that was very, very big into music. Like my dad played on the Soupy Sales show once in the uh, in the 60s. Um, just like always neck deep into it. Um, so like the image of Elvis was always, uh, a, a present one, even if it was like lingering behind something else. And we can get into fair discussions about, um, did Elvis steal the crown that he's wearing, which is the more you read about it, the more it's like kind of, but also kind of not in that, like he would personally struggle to try to get credits to his own black bandmates only to be told by his record label, no, this is the Elvis show, you are the face. So it that his personal responsibility gets mitigated by, again, the cultural production around him that decided, no, it's your white face only. Um, but, like, we, we see these similar projects with, like, Nick Cave being obsessed with Elvis and producing, for me, his best record, The Firstborn is Dead, which is about jesse presley um uh and it's about the like when you read about the birth of elvis it feels like reading an apocalyptic novel like an apocalyptic parable because shortly after he was born his brother they were twins his brother was stillborn and born minutes prior then still the most deadly tornado in american history hit tupelo the town where he was born um like like literally within about a day and so it reads like the book of revelation or something. Um, so having all these sort of 
also being an American who's as much as I'm into Marxism, I have that that lingering bit of me that got into magic and the occult and stuff like that. And so you kind of at a certain point, especially as you shed the affect of like, I can't just steal the magical cultures of the world. Like at some point I have to connect with what is it for me as a white American what does magic look like? Like, what culture can you connect to? And at a certain point, you realize, like, America being the melting pot uh, partly means that it melts away your connections to things before America. Like, it is as much a destroyer as it is this thing. So you you connect with what is Americanness in sort of the magical occult space. It's the same question Neil Gaiman ruminated on in American Gods of, like, we know what Celtic tradition Uh, looks like we know what jewish tradition looks like what japanese tradition but like america breaks apart and changes all of these like we've discussed before like jewishness in america looks very different than european jewishness there's just and that's not to say it's better or worse it's just it is different by nature of what america does to things i mention that because if you sit within sort of the going with Alan Moore's thought process here, the how magic is more a psychological space. It's not about, are these things literally real? Am I actually casting a spell? It's about these cultural echoes that suffuse us and inform a lot of our thought processes and decisions. Like, why is it that an American in this position will tend to be one way or another? And it's like, it comes from these things that we absorb. Images of the genocide of Native Americans, images of Elvis, images of um, the slain god, uh, like slain like Achilles or Dionysus in uh, JFK. And just the way Steve Erickson drops you inside of it. Like, it's the same thing, like you mentioned, that Ballard did with, like, I want to fuck Ronald Reagan, and which he wrote yeah. before he was president. He was talking about him as as a cowboy movie star. Um, and it's also the same thing that, like, Kathy Acker would do of, like, and Pinchon as well, where it takes this tremendous literary violence, and specifically a literary violence, it's not, you know, um, in order to immerse you in, like, this is the burning heart of America. Like I was mentioning to someone before, the reason why Blood Meridian is so... You said it. Yeah. You that's... said it. I think, I think uh, just to, to explain why I said that, I think this book is like haunted by Blood Meridian. Yes. Yeah. It's the, they, they live in that same space of like, Blood Meridian tries to go, what is the real mythic heart of America, and it's not the revolution or anything like that. It's this nihilistic, hateful war between Native Americans, ex-Confederates, and, uh, like, prospectors in, in the West, where there was no winning. There was just genocide and death and bigotry and violence and, uh, this this feels like okay well if that looks at there this is what if like let's look at the 20th century lots of books have done that obviously like that's that's not an irregular project um in literature by any means but this really uh yeah 
Yeah. Looks at this it felt like a spear in my heart. Like this yeah. hit me with that same power. When you I, get to the sections where there are mini chapters where the text is written in two columns because it's meant to replicate the twin towers. Yeah. Like that's the other thing is like the formal inventiveness of even just page to page. How does, how does the formatting work when he's writing the, um, the mixtape chapters are written as like more like prose poems riffing on the connection, the twining connection of two songs and twinness being the function of like, we have the twin towers, we have Jesse and Elvis, we have Parker and Zima. There's this, um, ah, ah, I love it. Well, I mean, so a few things. One, if we keep going with the twin and the couple metaphor, you also have, uh, John Kennedy and Bobby. Yep. Um, and we have Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Um, and of course, always this idea of the missing twin, right? The missing couplet. Um, the the world said and, and not answered. Um at the at the outset here, by the way, I want to recognize something and I wanna I wanna thank and recognize um Fiona Mazel whose uh, uh, article on this in the New York Times really helped me like organize my thoughts. I didn't want her name to not be mentioned here. She's an author uh, on her own uh, uh, right. She wrote three books. And I really want to read one of them because her analysis of Shadowban was uh, brilliant. Um, and I kind of wanted to give her a shout out because I really relied on her thoughts to get my shit together for this episode. Um, more music. We gotta end with music, right? Um, especially after Shadowban. Uh, w- never has it been more fitting. Yeah, and I, I wanna I wanna end with a track from a UK band called Ash Inspire. Um, these guys make avant-garde experimental black metal, but the good the good kind, right? Um, the not the kind of remember. Uh, Dodecahedron, how great were they? Let's just copy them. But instead, something that is younger, more contemporary, wilder, and also, by the way, explicitly and abhorrently, not abhorrently in its sense, but in the sense of its attitude, leftist and anti-fascist. They released a fantastic album in 2017 called Speak Not of the Lodanum Quandary, uh, which is like this crazy... Lots of echoes of Blake, by the way. Um, 19th century kind of like concept album. But now they are gearing up to release Hostile Architecture, which, by the way, features Otterball from Botanist. But also Ooh. a bunch of other, yes, but also a bunch of other great artists. And they've released one track from this upcoming album called Tragic Heroin. And it fits very well with Gospel's track because the vocals here are going to immediately catch your attention and just how flamboyant and um, emotive and just out there they really are. Um, In case you're wondering more about the leftist angle, they cite Mark Fisher and anti-rent and anti-homelessness and anti-fascism. And I also know these guys personally, or through the band and the blog, of course, became Facebook friends. And they practice what they preach as well, which is always fantastic. And the track itself is absolutely phenomenal um so thank you for listening please read steve erickson's shadow band 
it is an experience. And until next time, we leave you with Ashenspire's hostile architecture. Bye-bye. <laughs>